The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <laughs> okay, so let us carry on with the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. And uh, we have looked at the uh, Kaya Nupassana, which is the first of the four sections. And now we come to the Vedana Nupassana, contemplation of feelings. And uh, there is a, remember there's always a gradual movement here. So we are, you know, doing the Kaya Nupassana, gradually becoming more peaceful, gradually starting to enjoy the meditation more and more. And this progress in the meditation continues into the Vedana Nupassana. It is not like an alternative way of practicing. It is a movement forward. Uh, it is a, a you're going somewhere. Yeah, there's a change happening in the meditation, and this is not obvious from the Satipatthana Sutta. You cannot really. It's hard to see that there is a progress there, but uh, you see this elsewhere in the Sutta. Especially you see it in the Anapanasati Sutta. It's very obvious. You're mo- you're going somewhere. Uh, you're kind of there's more and more bliss. There's more and more peace as you. Uh, practicing here. And uh, so Vedana Nupassana is similar. So before we um, compare it to the Anapanasati Sutta, let's just have a quick look at how it is explained in the Satipatthana Sutta. So observing feelings. uh, How does a monastic meditate observing an aspect of feelings? Uh, It is when a monastic who feels a pleasant feeling knows I feel a pleasant feeling here. When they feel a painful feeling, they know I feel a painful feeling here. When they feel a neutral feeling, neither painful nor happy, uh, they know I feel a neutral feeling here. When they feel a material pleasant feeling, they know I feel a material pleasant feeling. Material means like worldly, worldly feeling, yeah. Pali word is samisa. Amisa means like of the flesh, yeah, of the body. Um, and so this is um, worldly, I think, is, to me, it makes more sense than material. Material sounds a little bit, I guess it is opposed to spiritual here. Yeah. When I feel a spiritual pleasant feeling, then I feel a spiritual pleasant feeling here. Yeah. When I feel a material painful feeling, then I feel a material painful feeling here. Yeah. Feel a spiritual painful feeling. You no, know, I feel a spiritual painful feeling here. Yeah. When I feel a physical or a worldly neutral feeling, yeah, they know I feel a worldly neutral feeling here. Yeah. And when they feel a spiritual neutral feeling here, yeah, they know I feel a spiritual neutral feeling here. Yeah. So these are the things you're supposed to know. And then you have the standard passage on. Uh, uh, externally, internally, liable to originate, and all of that. Uh, so, what is what is this about? Well, what this is about. First of all, you have this important distinction between the worldly or the physical or the five sense feelings and the spiritual. And uh, these are in Pali samisa and niramisa. And samisa literally means that have to do with the flesh. Yeah. So in other words, it's physical, it's bodily uh, things or sen- sensory things, if you like. Yeah? Whereas niramisa is without the flesh, without the body, without the five uh, senses. Uh, 
So this is a distinction here. So there's always, you can see here, this important distinction between the worldly and the spiritual that you see all the way through the suttas uh, and how we have to overcome, overcome the worldly things and move towards the spiritual. And then eventually we go even beyond the spiritual at the very end of the path. Uh, this is a, such an important distinction here. And uh, so, um, yeah, so this is just to kind of know, understand the difference between the two. And as you understand that, uh, then you know how to move from one to the other, overcoming one and then overcoming the other. Uh, and uh, it's quite obvious here that we are talking about, uh, it, you know, it, it specifically says about the unpleasant, the painful worldly feelings, right? Or the painful spiritual feelings. Uh, and uh, and this is where, as I mentioned before, this idea arises that you have to experience the pain of the body. And you sit in meditation and they say, just observe the pain. It's a very common thing that you hear on meditation retreats. And that's where this idea arises from. It arises from this. But again, remember what I was saying at the beginning, that the idea of anupassana, of contemplating or observing, which is used here, uh, does not mean that you have to see things directly. Uh, it means thing that you can understand them later on, uh, retrospectively. Uh, yeah, and it also means imagination. That's really with the thirty-one parts of the body. So it means you come out, and then you understand what is going on. Uh, and uh, so this is not given that this must mean direct observation. And when you go to the, as I said before, the Anapanasati, so it becomes clear, yeah, abundantly clear, because the feelings that you observe according to that sutta is piti, sukha, uh, citta sankara, and citta sankara and pasambati. It's all about happy feelings. There's nothing there about painful feelings. Uh, and yet that fulfills the feeling contemplation. Uh, so you have to be understood in that context. So you feel the material feelings, you overcome those, and then, of course, the, uh, the outcome of that is then to feel the spiritual pleasant feelings when you overcome the material feelings. Material pleasant feelings are also problematic on this path. This is the other side of things. So you know that when you are just enjoying pleasures in the body and and the meditation path of meditation is a bit of a mixed mixing of these feelings yeah you it takes a long time before you overcome the body completely and in the meditation as you move in anapanasati there's like a mixture you have some degree of piti and sukha and you can feel the piti sukha sometimes both in the body and mentally at the same time it takes a long time before the body disappears completely often it's there in the background in a refined way and so there is like a mixture of these feelings, but you're gradually moving from the worldly to the spiritual or the unworldly, if you like. It's a gradual movement, letting go more and more of the world, uh, getting more and more of the spiritual, yeah? stage by stage. Uh, this is what is happening here, uh, moving from one to the other. So it's important to fully understand the uh, physical and the, and the other side. Uh. So what is material neutral feeling? What is that? Uh, and that is just things that you feel through the five senses uh, that it doesn't really, you're not attracted nor rejected. These are feelings that are, you know, you see something with the eye and you just shrug your shoulders, it doesn't do anything to you. Uh, these are kind of the neutral feelings in the ordinary worldly sense when you restrain your senses uh, and you feel more neutral feelings. Uh, so these are the kind of preliminary neutral feelings uh, 
as a kind of upeka, but the real upeka comes much later on the path. Uh, this is a kind of temporary upeka coming from sense restraint. Uh, and then you move over to the more happy feelings, and if sometimes you have the interesting, the spiritual painful feeling. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. And that is defined in the suttas as when you are practicing and you you know the Dhamma, you understand that there is an escape from all of this. And then you think, oh, when will I kind of become an Arahant and dwell in that same state as the Arahants do? That's a spiritual painful feeling. Oh no, I'm trapped in this, all this Dukkha, when will I get out of this? That's the spiritual painful feeling here. And that urges you on. And the outcome of that is the spiritual happy feelings. So uh, that is the observation of feelings in brief. Yeah, this opposition between the spiritual and the physical. Uh, and uh, the understanding that all of this can be done merely or fully by simply contemplating the happy feelings that you find in the Anapanasati Sutta. So, uh, spiritual neutral feeling, what is that? That's maybe the last one. That's kind of the fourth jhana. That's a spiritual neutral feeling, a dukkha masukkha. So, all the way at the end of the path. Uh, okay, so let's um, move on to the mind. And um, so, we have how does a mendicant meditate, contemplating an aspect of the mind? It's when a mendicant understands mind with greed as mind with greed, mind without greed as mind without greed, or you could say desire, mind with ill will as mind with, with ill will, and mind without ill will as mind without ill will. Understands mind with confusion or delusion as mind uh, with confusion, mind without confusion as mind without confusion. They know the constricted mind as constricted, the scattered mind as scattered. They know the expansive mind as expansive, the unexpansive mind as unexpansive. They know the supreme mind as supreme, the mind that is not supreme as not supreme. They know the mind immersed in samadhi as mind immersed in samadhi, mind not in samadhi as mind not in samadhi. They know the freed mind as freed, and the unfreed mind as unfreed. And then you have the standard passage on the contemplation that's coming afterwards. Uh, it's the observing the mind, the third point, page 22. Uh, third point there. So uh, again, you can see this very clear distinction between two kinds of qualities of mind. Uh, the qualities that are defiled. Yeah, These are the qualities that were just called the samisa in the previous passage. Uh, here you kind of get it very clearly, defined qualities of mind. Uh, and then you have the undefined qualities of mind that come in the second half there. Uh, yeah, click and fairly clear distinction between the two. And you need to know both again. Uh, from moving from one, uh, you need to understand them both. You go from one to the other. Uh, and uh, so um, uh, these here are very close to the five hindrances, right? You have the uh, ill will, you have the greed, the first two hindrances. Uh, and then you have the last hindrance, is delusion is perhaps a bit like doubt. And then you have the scattered mind and the constricted mind. Well, these are basically equivalent to uh, the third and the fourth hindrance, the sloth and torpor and the restlessness. So all the five hindrances are there, and then you have the mind without those. You know what it is like. 
And uh, again, you don't have to. This is here exactly the same thing applies as applied in the previous one. You don't actually have to have heaps of greed in your mind uh, to contemplate it. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, you have, we have to kind of make people greedy during the retreat. We have to have kind of special greed sessions. Uh, how can you maximize greed so you can contemplate it? Yeah, really lots of greed. And then ill will kind of circle, ill will circle, <laughs> where you kind of, you, you uh, really work each other up and you kind of get, you are bad. No, you are bad. And you kind of, oh, and you build it up. And it, so otherwise you can't contemplate it, right? You've got to build this thing. It's exactly the same thing as the previous one. You have to feel these things. Actually, you don't. And this is the same principle that is, goes here. It is by overcoming these things that you understand them. When the mind is really without any desire, then you know what desire is. Because the mind is peaceful. You think, wow, this is what no desire is like. Then you really get it. And then you understand the power of having a mind without these defilements. You understand how why that is a real spiritual feeling here. Yeah. So you step out of these things, uh, then you understand. You step out of the five hindrances, uh, then you know what they are like. Yeah. The um, idea of the constricted mind, the other mind in the, which is tired or lethargic, it's like constricted. It's like you can't really, almost like the mind is kind of withdrawn into yourself. You can't reach out into the world anymore in the ordinary way. Uh, it's kind of a nice word for tiredness and, and um, lethargy. Uh, this is kind of one of the skills of the Buddha. He kind of points to many different angles and understanding certain concepts and ideas. He shows the different angles of understanding them. Constricted is one of those nice little words that you find occasionally in the suttas. Uh, scattered, yeah, restless, uh, and these kind of things. Uh, it kind of also makes sense. Uh, so these are the... Uh, defilements uh, and you learn to understand them to see what they are to overcome them gradually and um, you may think that these things are obvious again but they are not obvious uh, because things like greed here i think is raga is the pali word uh, it includes like deep-seated attachments to the world outside them uh, yeah so it actually it's quite hard to know that these things are there uh, you may think, you know, we think these things are obvious, but actually they're far from obvious at all. Uh, even the Niramisa and the Samisa we saw in the feeling section, uh, it takes a lot of insight to uncover these things and fully understand the whole breadth of desire and the whole breadth of sensory attachment. It can be very, very refined. Uh, and one way of thinking about uh, sensory attachment or, or is that uh, sensory attachment is not just attachment to objects that you see here or to things you hear or things you touch or whatever. It is not attachment to the things that you, but it's actually attachment to the very idea of seeing here. Yeah? The very fact of seeing is what you're attached to, the very fact of hearing here. Uh, because if you go in, want to go into a deep set of samadhi, you have to give up the whole idea of seeing and hearing here. So that attachment can be very profound and very subtle, and that's why all you know all of these uh, things have to be contemplated properly. Understand that actually far better not to see, much better. Yeah, it reminds me of that famous story of the nun Upalavanna was having problem with some kind of man who who liked her even though she was an arahant, uh, and he this man looked at her and said, "Oh, I, your eyes are so beautiful," and she plucks out her eyes. Okay, well here here's the eye here. <laughs> That's kind of cool, isn't it? I mean, it's, it shows you there's no attachment anymore. Yeah, it's seeing or not seeing, who cares? You know, you can go into jhanas and things. Uh, that's kind of uh, 
That's what arahants do. Well, not always, but sometimes they do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that is the side of understanding the hindrances, understanding the problems in the mind, understanding why a still mind is far more uh, conducive to happiness than a scattered mind, uh, why a mind that is free of the sloth and tiredness is far more conducive to happiness. The clear mind that is clear and powerful and bright uh, is the happy mind. Uh. And then we have the other qualities, the, the qualities that have to do with samadhi. They are the qualities that kind of have the opposite, and these are here the expansive mind. And the Pali is Mahagata. Mahagata is always used in the suttas in connection with Samadhi, used in connection with the four divine abidings, the uh, uh, Brahma Viharas. Uh, the mind is expansive because like it goes out into the world. There's no barriers anymore in the in, in life. Uh, you're not leaving anyone out. You don't have ill will towards any anyone. You have compassion for everyone. You bring anyone or everyone into your sphere of kindness and sphere of uh, uh, of spiritual values. Uh, so this is the expansive mind. Opposite is the unexpansive mind. That the what is that? What is that? The amma now the. Um, Mahagata and the um, Mahagata, not sure now, but uh, it's the opposite of Mahagata Chitta. Adonisano has not brought his uh, his uh, famous. Yeah, all right, that's okay. I forgive you, Venerable. Huh? So that's no problem. <laughs> we have then we have the uh, supreme mind. This here is the um, uh, Anuttara Chitta, and then we have the uh, Anuttara is like Uttara means beyond, and Anuttara means nothing beyond. And it's a very rare word in the suttas, but you can assume that if nothing beyond it means a very high state of samadhi or even something beyond that. Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be called anuttara, supreme, unsurpassed. There's some, sometimes a very direct translation here. And then you have the mind immersed in samadhi. Yeah? So here you can see we are moving on towards including samadhi in satipatthana. Yeah? You know the mind in samadhi. The only way you can know that is after having had a state of samadhi. Yeah? It's the only way. The mind, samahita, citta. Yeah? We're still on observing the mind. We're still on the third topic. Yeah? Uh, kind of a little bit over halfway down. Yeah? Uh, samadhi, it says there. Yeah? And uh, uh, and this is what is so interesting about the Satipatthana Sutta. You can see here how Samadhi is brought into the contemplation. Uh, the jhanas are brought in. We saw that already in the feelings because it had the Samisa Vedana, which is basically spiritual feelings. And spiritual feelings are defined as the jhanas elsewhere in the suttas. Uh, here we have a similar kind of thing. We have the Samadhi. And the next one is a freed mind. Uh, what is the freed mind? The freed mind is a mind that is released from, there is a kind of lower freedom, which is the samadhi, and the higher freedom, which are the Arya states. But the lower freedom in samadhi, you are freed from the body, from the five senses. You're freed from the five hindrances. You're freed from all of these things that, you know, that block your achievement of the highest happiness, so to speak, which comes at, at least initially through samadhi experience. So, uh, yeah, this, this again, it shows you that uh, although the main purpose of Satipatthana is to take you to Samadhi, the higher kind of Satipatthana also includes Samadhi itself. Uh, so you contemplate that Samadhi, you know what it means, eventually going beyond it. Uh, and then the freed mind, yeah, the, uh, at the very last one there. Uh, now, if you compare this to the Anapanasati Sutta, I should have made some nice tables for you so you can compare everything. 
I had those tables before, but for some reason I just, uh, I was remiss. I was kind of not mindful or something. I know no one, you know, this is kind of, yeah. <laughs> but it'd be nice to have it there. You can compare it to each other. Yeah, that looks quite nice when you see it. But now you just have to listen to me. Probably very hard to follow what I say, but if you can follow, then. Uh, so the uh, Chitta Nupassana in the Anapanasati Sutta, it starts with uh, uh, Chittang. Chit, uh, how does it start again now? You experience the mind, I think it starts with, uh, which is, uh, what is that? Um, anyway, you experience the mind, yeah? And then after you experience the mind, then you gladden the mind. And after gladdening the mind, you still the mind, which is Samahitang Chittang or Samadayang Chittang. And the last one is. Uh, so you have the four things, yeah? and if you look at those four things, they're very, very parallel to what is here. The last one, is almost exactly the same as a freed mind you have here. Vimochayang means to free. It's the last thing you do in the first 12 steps of, uh, of the Anapanasati Sutta. Yeah? The 12th step before you come to the inside part is freeing the mind. It means entering Samadhi. The one before that is uh, Samadhyang uh, Chittang, which means uh, stilling the mind. Yeah? Here is called Samadhi. It's exactly the same as Samadhi you find here. Abhipamodayang Chittang, which is to gladden the mind. It is not actually expressed here, but it is kind of implied. Yeah? The expansive mind and the supreme mind. This is a glad, happy mind coming towards the very end. And then you have the uh, experiencing the mind, which is the first one of these. So you have experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, stilling the mind, and then freeing the mind. Steps 9 to 12 in the Anapanasati Sutta. And experiencing the mind is, what is that? Well, what that is, most likely, is the idea when you... The body fades away, yeah? the senses start to fade away, that may be there in the background, your mind is coming into the focus. And that is what is often experienced as a nimitta in the meditation. When you see a mental light and all the physical properties of the world are fading away, you're moving into the mental realm. Yeah? And then within that mental realm, you're then gladdening, stilling, finally freeing, and that is where you enter the jhana states. So again, it's just bliss all the way, right? When you come to the nimittas, wow, the bliss is getting really, really, really powerful at this stage. Super powerful. It depends, of course, on what kind of nimitta you have. But regardless, it's going to be very happy. Lots of bliss, piti sukha, lots of peace. And you already you kind of you realize you don't want to do anything but meditate for the rest of your life at this point. And um, so this is... Again, you don't actually need to see any of these terrible states, yeah? greed, ill will, and all of that. It is all experienced simply through the joy and happiness and the power and stillness of the meditation. That is all you require. And then you understand what these things are about. Such a marvelous path, isn't it? And then, then people sit down and they experience pain, and you don't have to. That's not terrible. <laughs> I think it's so terrible. Actually, it's not really required at all. You just bypass the whole gamut of painful feelings to go into the bliss and just forget it all. Much better. Why all this painful stuff when we can actually experience bliss instead? <laughs> and um, 
So this is kind of what you get if you study the suttas properly here. And this is the problem, as I mentioned before, if you only take one sutta, and this is, you know, happens very often in Buddhism, you take the, take the Satipatthana Sutta as your only idea of what meditation is about and how we should live the Buddhist life, and you get it wrong because you cannot really take only one sutta. You have to understand how the whole process works. Uh, yeah, so experiencing, understanding pain, understanding these defilements, they can be done in different ways. Uh, you cannot assume that you can kind of fully understand what is going on just by reading the Satipatthana Sutta. So please enjoy your meditation. Yeah, make it really happy here. Yeah. Make it something that is really delightful and wonderful. Yeah. And uh, by being focusing more on the Anapanasati Sutta and taking the Satipatthana Sutta as a support to Anapanasati, then you start to get a very clear idea of what you have to do. Yeah. Never prioritize one sutta over the others. Uh, always see everything in context with each other. Uh, otherwise, you're going to get a um, slant, kind of a dodgy view of the Dhamma. So you free the mind. Yeah, this is co- now we're coming towards the very end here, towards the high samadhis. Uh, so that is the um, observing the mind. Yeah, uh, you do this externally, internally, externally, and both. So you make it. The idea here of internal is, first of all, you do it in relation to yourself. So you understand this from through your own experience. Then externally is, well, you, you assume that other people have the same. Yeah, You don't have to read their mind, but you, you just know that all the minds are the same. And then you make it universal, internal and external. It's a universal thing. This is how minds work. There is no escape in samsara. There isn't any kind of corner or type of being which is beyond this. All samsaric existence has this problem, has this kind of changeability and has this sort of, this sort of mind states. And now we come to the last one of the four satipatthanas, the observing of principles or um, mental qualities or phenomena. You can uh, translate this in different ways. So what is this? And it is the follows, following here. How does a mendicant meditate observing an aspect of principles? It is when a mendicant meditates by observing an aspect of principles with respect to the five hindrances. And how do they do that? It's when a mendicant who has sensual desire in them understands, I have sensual desire in me. When they don't have sensual desire in them, they understand, I don't have sensual desire in me. When they understand how sensual desire arises, how, when it's arisen, it's given up, and how, when it's given up, it does not arise again in the future. That's what you understand in relation to the sensory world. Yeah? Sensual desire here means anything in the sensory world. So um, again, you understand that you have sensual desire. You understand what this is all the way to the most refined aspects of it so that you can overcome it fully. You understand what the absence means really only through absence that you fully understand the presence yeah so these two kind of go together understanding absence and presence and then you understand how it arises and this is really really useful so how does it arise well it's much more powerful if you see these things for yourself because if you see them for yourself you really know what is going on but it's very obvious it's just you know you see something beautiful and you think that that beautiful thing is desirable because that's what we do with beautiful things. 
then desire arises, uh, sensory desire comes from that. It's very simple, really. So, uh, and of course, the counterpart then is to always remember the downside of that thing. Yeah? And by remembering the downside, uh, then you don't see it as beautiful anymore, uh, and you can let go of it. Uh, so, uh, when it's arisen, how it's given up, that's how it's given up, by no longer giving attention to the cause for sensual desire, giving up that seeing the beautiful, seeing the unbeautiful aspect, or the lack of beauty, or whatever. And then, once it's given up, how it does not arise again in the future, is the last one. And that is understanding that, you know, the giving up of craving, all craving, it never actually arises again in the future, once that is given up completely. How? Through insight, seeing into non-self and all these kind of things. It never comes back again, one after the other. So, um, this is equivalent to Dhammavichaya in the seven factors of awakening. Yeah? Seeing the dark and bright qualities, uh, the blameworthy and blameless qualities and all of that. Uh, this is essentially the same thing. Yeah? Understanding these things in detail. Uh, you understand ill will in exactly the same way. When you have it, when you haven't got it. Uh, uh, how ill will arises, uh, when it has arisen, how it's given up. Uh, and uh, once it's given up, uh, how it doesn't arise again in the future. Uh, same kind of idea. Knowing ill will in all its forms uh, and seeing how it arises. Yeah, the Buddha talks about the patika nimitta, we've seen before, uh, the resistance to something. Uh, and then uh, uh, how to give it up by no longer paying attention to that patika nimitta, having metta and compassion instead. Uh, doesn't arise again in the future, you eliminate it completely through the uh, insights and becoming a noble person. Huh? They, when they have dullness and drowsiness in them, they understand, I have dullness and drowsiness in me. Huh? When they don't have dullness and drowsiness in them, they understand, I don't have dull, dullness and drowsiness in me. Huh? They understand how dullness and drowsiness arise. How, when already arisen, they are given up, and how, once they have given up, they don't arise again in the future. So, um, again, the biggest reason for dullness and drowsiness is the first two hindrances. Yes, the more you give up the first two, the less dullness and drowsiness you have. It can also exist a little bit on its own, without the first two, especially maybe in relation to the sense of self and these kind of things. And so you understand when the mind isn't really fully bright, it isn't fully energized. Remember, towards the very end of the path, before you enter jhana, dullness just means that the mind isn't fully energetic yet. It's a slight remnant of this hindrance is still there. Why isn't it fully energized? And this is what you kind of understand here. So these are very refined things at this point, uh, and you have to really be clear about what is going on uh, and uh, see these things with uh, a lot of care. Uh, restlessness and remorse, they understand, uh, I have restlessness and remorse in me. Uh, when they don't have restlessness and remorse in them, they understand, I don't have restlessness and remorse in me. Uh, always, this understanding always comes together, the positive and the negative. Uh, 
to understand how restlessness and remorse arise, how when they've arisen, they're given up, and how once given up, they don't arise again in the future. So restlessness, we know what the core's restlessness is, yeah, the agitation of the mind and the body. Uh, and of course, that restlessness becomes more and more refined as you move towards samadhi. And uh, when you're staying with the breath, the restlessness there is when the mind wants to do other things, yeah, it wants to fantasize or think about something. Or when you come into the feelings, the nice feelings, the mind isn't fully with the feelings, but it's kind of moving a bit back and forth. When you come even more profound, when the nimittas aren't perfectly still in your mind. So you can see how restlessness becomes more and more refined as you move towards samadhi. There's still a little bit of movement in the mind. The coarse movement is gradually disappearing, becoming more and more refined, until eventually the mind becomes completely still. No movement whatsoever. In fact, movement becomes impossible because you are glued to the object. What kind of glue they use, I forgot, but it's a very powerful glue. You cannot get it off. Super glue or something like that. Yeah. It's the Buddha's super glue here, called Piti Sukha, glues you to the object. So, and this is why when you read the Anapanasati Sutta, there are so many stages of give up calming down. Yeah? The calming down is this gradual movement away from restlessness. There's already a lot of calming down just by becoming mindful uh, and just by being in the present. Uh, and then comes the Kaya Sankara and Patisambhati, the calming down of the breath. It's the first one. Then you have the Chitta Sankara and Patisambhati, the calming down of the mental content. Uh, and then the last one, or towards the very end, is sama, Samadayang Chittang. Samadayang is again stilling the mind. Yeah. All the way through, every one of these steps has a stilling aspect to it. More and more refined, less and less restlessness, more and more absolute stillness until it be really becomes absolute. The moment you free your mind from these hindrances, all restlessness is gone. The mind is completely still. When they have doubt in them, they understand, I have doubt in me. When they don't have doubt in them, they understand, I don't have doubt in me. They understand how doubt arises, how when it's already arisen, it's given up, and how when it's given up, it doesn't arise again in the future. So doubt is all about knowing the wholesome from the unwholesome. And uh, as you go deeper and deeper in this process, the less doubt you have because you have closer and closer to the wholesome. The wholesome here really means the jhana state. So that's when you understand fully overcome doubt. So the closer you are to real samadhi, the less doubt you have. The smaller is the area of doubt. You know what the really wholesome mindset is like and you know what the unwholesome qualities are. Doubt is always going down as you do this. So um, this is really how you overcome it. And then, of course, you have to investigate yeah, to overcome doubt. You have to look at things uh, to be clear about what is wholesome and what is not. Uh, most of the time, this talk, this is about uh, the qualities of the mind itself, yeah, whether they are wholesome or not, uh, how powerful they are. But it can also be in regard to teachings as well, perhaps, in a broader sense, especially earlier stages of the path. But ultimately, it really comes down to the qualities of mind that you experience. Uh, this is what this is about. Uh, so, um, 
This is the path of meditation. Remember, this is very refined states. Yeah, this is a meditation at a very advanced level that we're talking about here. It is not ordinary things. And so it may not be super relevant for everyone, but that's okay. Yeah, you have these things in the back of your mind and you have some idea what needs to be done to overcome these things. Yeah, to have insight, spend a bit of time at the end of the meditation just to reviewing the meditation what happened trying to understand and when i say you know at the end of meditation reviewing it i mean something very simple it is not complicated you don't have it's not like you know solving schrodinger's equation or anything like that you know it's something very simple it's like saying okay wow i i, I really relaxed i didn't try to control suddenly it worked yeah something like that you and then you understand well what did i do to really let go what was the trick and actually, I was just sitting there. I always tried to hold on, but now this time I just really sat back and I didn't do anything. That worked. Wow. It's simple things like that, right? Uh, understanding your attitude that you have when you enter meditation uh, and how that affects you, uh, all of these kind of things. Uh, so it's simple stuff, but it's usually very worthwhile reviewing the meditation to understand these things. Uh. So, um, what next? There is the five aggregates, and I should say that, as I have said before, that uh, again with the even the last part of the Satipatthana Sutta, there is five. We have five kind of ways of doing this. Five sort of um, approaches. Five hindrances. Five aggregates. Six sense fields. Seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. Yeah, that's what we have here. And I should say that here too, there are some of these are more original than others. And the most original ones are the ones to do with the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And the other ones in all likelihood have been added at some point during a history of, of Buddhism, especially the very early part of Buddhist history. So the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening are by far the most likely to be early. Yeah, And um, so... Uh, yeah, and uh, of course, what is the interesting about these, the way they are expressed here, uh, is that they are all expressed in terms of causality. How do they arise? How are they given up? Yeah, And it is from this idea that you get this idea, that Dhamma here, what makes this particular approach in the Satipatthana dif different from the Chitta-nupassana and Vedana-nupassana is precisely this focus on causality, conditionality, how things come into being and all of these kind of things. Yeah, This is kind of the point of the five hindrances. Yeah? That's why uh, Bandha calls it principles rather than phenomena because it focuses more on the laws of nature, the laws of how these come into being rather than actually the phenomena themselves. Because the phenomena themselves, well, they have already been looked at in the mind contemplation. Yeah, You already see these phenomena, but now you are seeing it in more detail, more in a causal network, if you wish. So, um, because the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening are the important ones, I'm going to leave out the aggregates, the sense fields, and the four noble truths, and just go to the seven factors of awakening on page 24. 4.44 on page 24. And we'll have a quick look at this uh, before we wrap up everything here. So... Um, 
this is how you think I'm not going to make it through. This is how I make it through by just skipping a few pages. <laughs> so, um, furthermore, a mendicant meditates by observing an aspect of principles with respect to the seven awakening factors, satta sambhojanga. And how does a mendicant meditate observing an aspect of principles with respect to the seven awakening factors? It's when a mendicant who has the awakening factor of mindfulness in them understands I have the awakening factor of mindfulness in me. When they don't have the awakening factors of mindfulness in them, they understand I don't have the awakening factor of mindfulness in me. They understand how the awakening factor of mindfulness that has not arisen comes to be and how the awakening factor of mindfulness that has arisen becomes fulfilled by development. This is now it's getting really exciting. Yeah, the five hindrances are going down. The seven awakening factors are starting to arise. In the suttas, the hindrances are always the opposite of the awakening factors. As the hindrances go down, the awakening factors emerge. So there is kind of two com uh, um, complementary ways of uh, thinking about the development of mental qualities. One is to understand the defilements and then gradually get rid of the defilements. But another way, which is more positive, is to understand the awakening factors yeah, and think, wow, this is much more inspiring than us bloom and defilements. So let's kind of forget about those defilements and focus on the awakening factors instead. Because they are really nice. They're starting with mindfulness and go through all of these beautiful qualities. And we can develop those directly. And when you develop those directly, you are also overcoming the hindrances as a byproduct. Yeah, good byproduct. So some, some. <laughs> so um, this is uh, as a kind of side effect. Usually side effects are bad, but in this case, side effects are really good. So awakening factor of mindfulness. What exactly is that? And what it is? It is the practice of satipatthana. Yeah, what we're looking at now. By practicing that, you are, uh, that is the mindfulness factor of awakening. You are mindful, you apply it to the breath and all of these kind of things. And that is the mindfulness factor of awakening here. It is not just that. Yeah, we, we talked about this before. I can talk about it very briefly again. It is also anything else that can give rise to mindfulness. In the suttas, specifically, it is said the Dhamma, uh, Dhamma Nusati, yeah, is also a Awakening factor of mindfulness. If you get the Dhamma Nusati to work, the contemplation of Dhamma, thinking about the teachings, and you become mindful because of that, then uh, the Dhamma Nusati, the, the, the awakening factor, the Sati, Sati Sambhojanga, arises from that. But I think any Anusati, any contemplation that gives rise to mindfulness, yeah, the kind of mindfulness where you are energetic and you feel joy and all of these kind of things, uh, Anything like that is really an awakening factor of mindfulness. So you can use any of these anusatis, sila anusati, chaga anusati, sangha anusati, buddha anusati, devata anusati, and what else? And anything that gives right to mindfulness in this way. Those are the usual kind of anusatis recommended by the Buddha. Don't go for the raga anusati. That is the recollection of sensual desire. Don't, don't recollect that. Sometimes that gives rise to a kind of shallow form of happiness, but that's not, not part of this. It has to be a kind of the positive uh, uh, anusatis. 
So that's the mindfulness factor of awakening. Yeah, you understand how it comes to arise. And of course, the way it comes to arise is by doing the sense restraint, doing the first six factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, and then using the Anusatis or whatever to boost that mindfulness, often together with Pamoja. I mentioned before, Pamoja, energy, and Sati often come together as in one kind of package. Uh, and uh, then this it arises from that, yeah, that ability to, then you start to become aware because the biggest hindrances are let go of the things that happen when you don't restrain the mind. And then you develop that factor of mindfulness. How do you develop it? By practicing more mindfulness of breathing. You bring it into existence before you start mindfulness of breathing. By practicing the mindfulness of breathing, the mindfulness factor of awakening becomes stronger and stronger and stronger until you become an arahant. That's when it reaches maximum strength. So arahants have the highest mindfulness. And the rest of us, we are kind of struggling on a little bit in the darkness and the shadows, trying to get these things established. And then, once the mindfulness awakening factor is established, and you get the awakening factor of investigation of principles, Dhammavichya Sambhujanga, and you have the Virya Sambhujanga, and each one of these arises out of the previous one. So you have the mindfulness, then you investigate any remaining defilements, uh, and as you do that, you abandon those defilements, then the energy becomes even stronger. Energy is one of the factors of samadhi uh, that is most noticeable with samadhi and a very energetic mind. Rapture is an effect of samadhi. It, these arise out of each other. Uh, yeah, As you practice the meditation, as you watch the breath, these things come into existence. Uh, from the rapture, when the rapture starts to calm down, the Tranquility comes, the deep sense of stillness within her, the rock-like feeling, you don't want to go anywhere, you're just really, really happy, really enjoying yourself. And from that tranquility then comes the samadhi itself, the real samadhi, the jhanas and these kind of things. And then finally culminating in the fourth jhana, which is the equanimity. One the next one emerging out of the previous one, one after the other, that is how they arise by staying with the breath, overcoming the defilements, developing these good qualities, and whoa, the whole thing just uh, takes off in this way. Yeah. This is how you develop these factors of awakening. Hang out with the breath, enjoy the breath, take it a long way on the path. Yeah. So, seven factors of awakening and breathe. We did talk about them a bit before, so I guess you, that, that's probably sufficient. Uh, so, um, uh, this here, uh, I'm not going to go into the Four Noble Truths, I will leave that out for now. Uh, but uh, this here then is equivalent to the last four steps in the Anapanasati Sutta. Yeah? The last four steps are the Anicca Nupassana, Viraga Nupassana, Nirodha Nupassana, Patinisagga Nupassana. And this is not just a course in Dhamma, this is also a course in Pali, by the way. So, that's, <laughs> so you're going to become really, really good Pali once this course is finished. And those four terms are the Anupassana, the contemplation of impermanence, Anicca Anupassana, Viraga Anupassana, contemplation of fading away, Nirodha Anupassana, contemplation of cessation, Patanisanga Anupassana, the contemplation of relinquishing or giving up. Yeah? And uh, what is this? Well, what this is, this is exactly what you are seeing here in a sense. The process of samadhi, when the mind comes to samadhi, is that kind of process. 
Yeah, the process when you look at watching the breath, you watch, look at the first 12 steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, that is a process where you first of all, you see anicca, you see things changing, things are not stable. But it's not that, not just that things are changing, it is that things are, have a, a tendency to change in a particular way, they fade away. Yeah? As you meditate, what is fading away? There's a large number of things that are fading away. The body is fading away, right? This is one of the first things. The senses are fading away. The defilements are gradually fading away in the background. Yeah, there are certain feelings that are fading away. The painful feelings are fading away. You have less and less painful feelings. The happy feelings are getting more and more refined. The other ones are fading away. Perceptions are fading away. You're seeing less and less. The world becomes smaller and smaller. All you're seeing is the breath, and the breath is gone. You have the nimitta. Your perceptions are fading away, narrowing down yeah, to a very small point. The will, the sankhara, as are fading away. The will is becoming more and more refined until it's almost practically gone. Consciousness is fading away. The senses are going. If because the senses are going, large parts of what you can be conscious of is also fading away, narrowing down ultimately on the mind consciousness, and then that starts to fade away as well. So the the five things, the things I've been talking about, are just the five khandas, right? You're seeing the five khandas changing and gradually fading, gradually being eliminated. You see this directly here. So I think this is one of the reasons we saw before why the five khandas are an aspect have been drawn into the Satipatthana Sutta, because actually that is what you're seeing here. You're seeing that these things are gradually changing here. Five khandas are just your experience, right? That's all it is. It is not some kind of mystical division into things. That just what you are experiencing right now is the five khandas. And you see them fading away, changing, disappearing over time, becoming more and more Beautiful, yeah. You're creating these marvelous jewels of five khandas uh, with beautiful uh, aspects, full of happiness, full of joy, full of all these marvelous qualities, bright and clear and wonderful, uh, and um, creating a marvelous mind. So this is what all of this is about, and we can see there why that last four steps of the Anapanasati Sutta, Anicca, Viraga, Niroda, why it fits with what we're doing here, because it's all about causality, how things change, how we move from one to the other, how some things end, and then ultimately, Patinisanga, which is the giving up, and the giving up is the ending when you never want to go back to it again, and when you don't want to ever want to go back to it again, that's called uh, the ending of craving for these things. Uh, you no longer have any desire for these things at all. Uh, let them go completely here. Uh, Patinisagga, the final stage of this path. Uh. This is what Satipatthana does to you. Uh. Does it sound good? Yeah? <laughs> Sounds good. I, I don't know if, if I'm a good salesman or not, so I just have to check afterwards whether I have... <laughs> sold anything or whether I have, I have failed miserably. <laughs> so um, that is the seven factors of awakening. And then we have the very last paragraph on the Satipatthana. I'm just going to skip the Four Noble Truths, but the very last one says that anyone who develops these forms of mindfulness meditation in this way for seven years can expect one of two results. Awakening in the present life, or if there is something left over, non-returner let alone seven years. Anyone who develops these four in this way for six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, 
not one year, but 11 months. No, not 11 months. Uh, seven months. Ah. Hmm. That, that's interesting. Is that interesting? Why is it, why is it seven months? Why is it not 11 months? Uh, this is kind of when, they, when, you see that, when you see that, you think, this is really strange. It starts with seven years, right? Uh, and then it jumps from one year to seven months. And then what happens next? It goes from six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, a fortnight, let alone a fortnight, seven days. But it doesn't say six days. It doesn't say five days. Actually, if you go to some of these other versions of the sutta, it says all of those things. It says 11 months, 10 months. It says seven days, six days, goes down to one day. Mm. And it doesn't say seven hours. It doesn't go down beyond that. <laughs> Six hours, five hours, four hours. <laughs> so it's kind of fascinating. So the, one of the questions I always wondered is how original this part of the Satipatthana Sutta is. And I know that Bhante Sujata, when he kind of drew up what he thought was the original, he left this out. And I think he's probably right about that. Because it's, kind of, it's a bit strange. Yeah, This number seven occurs everywhere. Starts. What does it start with? Seven years. What does seven years got to do with it? Uh, and then it jumps from one year to seven months. Yeah, you want to read eleven months. What? What? Why? And then it ends with seven days. Uh, this number seven seems to be very prevalent here. Uh, and uh, I, I think, and this is kind of one of those things that you start to, you know, you see when you get told <laughs> told it because it's very hard to see on your own, but. Things like the number seven has a kind of mythological meaning to it, yeah? And uh, very often when uh, this, I think, may, may, may have not been added by the Buddha anyway, but uh, very often when these suttas, the narrative is created and people add things to them, uh, then very often things that are meaningful to people will be put in there. And if the number seven is kind of powerful and has a special meaning, uh, then that number seven gets a kind of important position in these kind of things. Uh, so this is why I doubt that, uh, I have doubts whether the Buddha put that in there. I think it's more likely to have been some redactor over time. It may not originally be part of the sutta. But I think that is maybe what is going on here. Yeah, The number seven has a certain power, so you make it prominent. Uh, and that kind of gives power to the sutta. Yeah, if, if that is meaningful to you, then it gives power to the sutta in a certain, certain strange kind of way, in a mythological kind of way. Yeah numerological kind of way here. Anyway, this is just wild speculation on my part. I hope you will uh, indulge in my speculation. <laughs> so that is the uh, Satipatthana Sutta. That is what the Buddha said. Satisfied. The monastics were happy with what the Buddha said. So uh, I apologize for going a bit fast there. We could have spent uh, much more time on the Satipatthana Sutta, but uh, sometimes that's enough uh, and you are, can be happy with that. Now we're going to go back. We're not finished yet, so please hang in there. If you are desperate for a break, please go for a break at any time, but I will just power through to the end. Uh, so <laughs> let's see what happens. Uh, so now back on page four. Uh, we're about halfway down after that little marker in the middle, which says four. Page four, uh, and we're going to look at the remnant, the last part of the gradual training. So I've just been making the case that that paragraph on giving up the five hindrances, uh, that is essentially Satipatthana. So we did a detour to the Satipatthana Sutta, and now we come back to the very last part of the Chula Hatipa Dopama Sutta. 
And this is what it says. Uh, they give up these five hindrances, uh, the corruptions of the heart that weaken wisdom. Uh, yeah, so, so it's a kind of a nice little phrase right there. The five hindrances, uh, the corruptions, the upakilesas, I think it is, uh, of the heart, I can't remember exactly, that weaken wisdom. Yeah, that dubala uh, karaniha, something dubala means weak. Yeah? And so it makes wisdom weak. Yeah. And this is kind of why these hindrances have to be overcome. And this is why you have to eliminate them completely. With, if the hindrances aren't completely gone, you cannot attain either a deep samadhi nor attain any state of awakening. It has to be completely gone. So uh, these are the corruptions of the heart yeah, that corrupt your ability to see clearly. Yeah. Then, only then, are you able to attain deep samadhi. Then, quite secluded, uh, from uh, from the quite secluded from the sensory world or the sense the sensory realm yeah kamehi is plural it means all the five senses it's a difference between the plural and the singular use of that that word karma Pl plural means all the five senses uh, secluded from unwholesome qualities the akusalehi damehi they enter and remain in the first absorption, the first jhana, which has a rapture and bliss born of seclusion, uh, while placing the mind and keeping it connected. Uh, that's a Bantusujato terminology, which means savitaka savichara. Yeah, it is the uh, last remnant of the movement of the mind, which is still there. Uh. So this is the description of the first jhana. So now, for the first time in your life, uh, you are experiencing otherworldly bliss. Uh, a bliss that is so profound that you have no idea that this was even possible to experience anything like this. Uh, something beyond the world. Uh, and uh, literally in the suttas it says that you have gone beyond the world. You have reached the end of the world, lokanta. Yeah, you have look, that's what this is called, the end of the world. Which world? Well, the sensory world. The world, the loka, very often means that sensory world. And at the end of that world, what do you find? You find bliss and happiness. Yeah, you don't find, you find whatever. <laughs> and um, so this is kind of the marvelous thing about it. Lokanta, end of the world, is really happy place. Yeah, the world being blown up and disappearing and never see it again. The best thing that ever happened to you. Huh? So this is what is going on here. The bliss and rapture born of seclusion. Seclusion from what? Seclusion from the senses. Seclusion from the body. Seclusion from all of these hindrances. All of these kind of things. Viveka. Yeah, viveka ja. Viveka is basically drawing away from the world. The kaya viveka and then the chitta viveka coming from that. Uh, this is otherworldly happiness. Yeah, and it's um, people who have these experiences, they say that it, this is like you, you know, it's just completely different from anything you had before. It's lit literally otherworldly. Yeah. And it is so otherworldly that it's very common to misunderstand this and think that this is Nibbana. No access to the body, no access to the will. Yeah, the mind is completely stable. You can't do anything in these states. You don't want to do anything because you're so happy. You want to stay there forever. Actually, probably not even forever is a long time, but you want to stay there for as long as you possibly can. And because they are so powerful, because the sense of self is largely gone. Imagine if there is no will anymore. You're not doing anything. 
it means that you feel completely unified. Yeah, it's like God and me. Yeah, we became one. And I was there. I saw it. This is the end. This is the end of everything. Yeah, this is it. I saw God. Why? Because this is what unification of everything means. Yeah, coming merging with God and experiencing bliss and the sense of self being gone. Sense of self is built up out of will. Usually, take away the will, there's almost no sense of self left. You can barely understand that there is a sense of self there. So that's why people take this to be the end of the path. And they may give it different names. They may call it the universal consciousness. Some may call it God. Some may call it whatever. And sometimes Nibbana is said to be this kind of thing. Yeah? This is why you have to be so careful, not kind of lowering the Dhamma to ensure that we understand the full depth of these teachings. So, but this is kind of astonishing that these things even exist, isn't it? Isn't it kind of extraordinary? You go on this amazing path of Anapanasati, experiencing one state of bliss after another, one more powerful than another, and you think, I can't take any more of this bliss. Wow, too much bliss. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not the worst problem in life, right? Too much bliss yeah. is kind of, a, you can deal with those kind of problems. And the same thing with the stillness, becoming more and more profound. And you are just marveling at all the stages of happiness. There's like one stage beyond the previous one. And very often people come to a state of piti and sukha, and they kind of say, oh yeah, I've read in the suttas that when you have the five jhana factors, you have a jhana. So I've got piti, yeah, I can feel the piti, happy. I feel the sukha, yeah, happy inside, yeah. Mind is stable on the object, yeah. So, and vitaka vichara, yeah, I'm still thinking, so there's vitaka vichara there. So this must be jhana. No, it is not jhana. Yeah, it is a particular kind of constellation of five jhana factors, not just any kind of five jhana factors. It is jhana factors that have become incredibly stable and powerful. We have just been talking about the um, uh, Anapanasati Sutta, and in the Anapanasati Sutta, it talks about piti and sukha quite early on. Yeah, it is already with Vedranupasana, and you have many more stages before you come to the jhana stages. So. This is what is so marvelous about it. Isn't that wonderful that it is actually even more happiness in front of you? There's like no end almost to all this happiness and joy. It just goes on. And again, sometimes you wonder, as Ajahn Brahm likes that, you wonder whether you can take any more happiness. And so that, that's kind of a most amazing thing with this path. And then eventually, having gone a long way down this path, eventually you come to this thing called the jhanas, which are otherworldly, completely otherworldly. You already feel like an alien, but now you really feel like an alien at this point. This Brahmin is called a footprint of the realized one and also used by the realized one, and also marked by the realized one. Yeah, remember the beginning when we started out? The simile of the elephant? He sees a footprint and he comes to the conclusion, this is a big bull elephant. That's the conclusion the person comes to. Premature, right? You haven't yet seen it, so you don't know. And then he sees the... Uh, something has been used by the bull elephant, yeah, up in the trees, you see the markings of, of the bull elephant. Uh, so you see many signs of the bull elephant, and as you get closer, as you see more signs, you feel more and more, and more confident. Uh, yeah. So the first jhana is a mark of the Buddha. 
It's a sign of the Buddha. You know that the Buddha has also walked in this direction. He must have done the same thing here. Yeah. So this is kind of astonishing, yeah? This is what the Buddha suttas talk about the jhanas, and very often when they talk about the jhanas, they talk about them in extraordinarily elevated ways. And the idea of something marked by the Tathagata, which is the word here, the footprint of the Tathagata, is a very kind of powerful way of elevating this to almost the end of the path itself. The things that you're experiencing here are so close to the end of the path that they are worthy of being called the footprint of the Buddha. That's how powerful this is. And uh, you know, this is not just here, it is in many other places as well. You have the Uttarimanusadhamma, the superhuman states, whatever you want to call them. The Allang Arya Nanadasana, we say, so the distinction in knowledge and vision, where they are the noble ones. Because all of these things are always the four jhanas and the four stages of awakening. That's what it is every time. These are very profound things. And it's very important not to overestimate oneself. These are kind of way down the track and very powerful states of mind. So the footprints of the Tathagata. But a noble disciple would not yet come to the conclusion. The Blessed One is fully awake in Buddha. The teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. You still haven't seen the bull elephant. You have preliminary evidence, but not the final evidence that is required. Furthermore, as placing of the mind and keeping it connected is stilled, yeah, the vitaka vichara are stilled, you are now avitaka avichara, a mendicant enters and remains in the second absorption, second jhana, which has rapture and bliss born of samadhi with internal clarity and confidence, uh, sampasadana, uh, and uh, a unified mind, uh, ekodibhuta, ekodibhava, one of those, uh, uh, without placing the mind and keeping it connect connected. Uh, this too is called the footprint of the realized one. Uh, so here the stilling reaches its uh, highest, its apex, this doesn't go beyond this. The mind becomes completely still. There is no more vitaka and vichara, and you experience a new kind of bliss that is even preferable to the previous one, the second jhana. Further, with the fading away of rapture, a mendicant enters and remains in the third absorption, where they meditate with equanimity, mindful and aware, personally experiencing the bliss of which the Noble Ones declare, equanimous and mindful, one meditates in bliss. Yeah, so this is where you reach the highest point of bliss. There is no bliss beyond this in terms of direct experience of sukkha. Beyond this there is equanimity. Equanimity is preferable to this, but it's not a direct experience of happiness. It's an alternative way of experiencing happiness. So you reach the highest, the pinnacle of bliss in the universe. There is no bliss, there is no sukkha higher than this. So, um, it's kind of... Uh, it's kind of always a bit understated, yeah? This is the beautiful thing about the Buddha's teaching. Yeah, equanimous and mindful, you meditate in bliss. It does, it doesn't kind of make a big deal out of it. And personally experiencing the bliss, or you can say, I maybe like the idea of directly experiencing the bliss, 
it is direct because now you have given up the piti. The piti is more the a coarser aspect of bliss. This is even more refined. Yeah, just the sukha remains uh, pure bliss, nothing else. The purest bliss uh, possible in samsaric existence. Uh, but that too is no good. Yeah. Then you go on and further up, giving up all pleasure and pain, uh, with the former ending of happiness and sadness. Uh, a mendicant enters and remains in the four, fourth absorption, without pleasure and pain, with pure equanimity and mindfulness. Uh, this too is called the footprint of the realized one. Uh, you go beyond all pleasure, uh, and because you go beyond pleasure, you also go beyond pain, because this is always go, comes in pairs. Uh, so because of that, you, both of them disappear, uh, and you attain the purity of equanimity and mindfulness. Uh, and this is why the fourth jhana is the uh, kind of the culmination of the Buddhist path. Uh, you reach the most powerful mind you can have uh, with the greatest ability to gain insight. Uh, upeka means this kind of looking on, yeah, your ability to look on. Uh, and you have this incredibly powerful mind which just looks on. Uh, and it's called imperturbable. This is what it's called at this stage. Uh, the word imperturbable is used for the fourth jhana and also for the first two immaterial attainments. Uh, imperturbable means that there's nothing that can shake you, nothing that can distract you, nothing that can in any way budge you. Yeah, You are completely solid where you are. Uh, and this is why this is the most powerful place for insight, because if you reach imperturbability, it means you can deal with the most difficult things that are to be seen in the world. You can deal with the idea of emptiness, you can deal with the ideas of non-self, you can deal with the you know, complete impermanence of all things, you can deal with being able to see everything as dukkha. Before, you can't deal with that because the mind just isn't stable enough. Only now does it have the stability to be able to see things with real insight. This is why the idea of imperturbable, anenja, is such a powerful thing. And this is why the fourth jhana is really the end of the path uh, in terms of samadhi. You can go samadhi beyond that, but it's not required for insight because you have reached the qualities that are necessary for insight to happen. So what is that insight? Uh, what insight do you get? And of course, the insights you get is the tevija, yeah, that we see everywhere. You will recall your past lives. Uh, so um, uh, let's just read through it because it's good fun just to read it. Uh, yeah, I <laughs> enjoy reading these things. So when the mind has become stilled in samadhi like this, uh, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady, and imperturbable, there you are. Uh, they extend it towards the recollection of past lives. Uh, they recollect many kinds of past lives. That is one life, two lives, three lives, four lives, five lives, ten lives, twenty lives, thirty lives, forty lives, fifty lives, hundred lives, a thousand lives, a hundred thousand rebirths, many eons of world contracting, many eons of world expanding, uh, and many eons of world contracting and expanding. Uh. They can recollect the many kinds of past lives with the feature and details. Uh, this too is called the footprint of the realized one. Uh. So this is the first one. This is kind of real insight in Buddhism, yeah? the really profound insight, knowing your past lives. And then you come out of that, uh, that eggshell 
Just like the little chick coming out of the eggshell, so you come out of your eggshell, the shell of ignorance that envelops you, that surrounds you, that forces you to only see partial reality, not being able to see the world fully. And when you come out of that eggshell and you see sangsaric existence, that's when you really start to understand. And this is one of the reasons why, what, and of course what you understand really is dukkha, that's what you see here. Because you understand that this whole sequence moving on in Sangasara is very problematic. So seeing, recalling your past life is largely equivalent to seeing the first noble truth, the dukkha. This is what you're seeing here. But then you carry on and with a mind immersed in samadhi like this, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady and imperturbable, they extended towards knowledge of the death and rebirth of sentient beings. With clairvoyance that is purified and surpasses the human, they understand how beings are reborn according to their deeds. This is called, too, is called the footprint of the realized one. So here what you're seeing is you're seeing the co- how causality behind the rebirth how you get reborn depending on you know how you live your life whether you live it well or badly and all of these kind of things and um, so now you're coming very close to the end of this you're starting to see dukkha you're starting to see the causal structure behind dukkha and there's only one last thing to penetrate and that is to understand well how does this all of this happen And of course, how it happens, it happens without a self, without someone in charge. It happens because of causality. You know, suddenly you get into the wrong company and you become a dodgy person. You start doing bad things, not because you want to do bad things, but just because you are corrupted by the people around you. And suddenly you are reborn in a bad place. So it is not as if you can control this. This is kind of the scary part of it. It just happens depending on cause and conditions. And that full insight into that is what happens at the very last stage here, when you fully understand the Four Noble Truths. Yeah? You already understood them partially, but now comes the full understanding of this. Uh, where the mind has become immersed in samadhi like this, purified, bright, flawless, rid of corruptions, pliable, workable, steady and imperturbable, they extend it towards knowledge and ending of defilements. Uh, they truly understand that this is suffering. They truly understand this is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the practice that leads to the cessation of suffering. Four Noble Truths. They understand these are the asavas, the defilements. This is the origin of the asavas. This is the cessation of asavas. This is the practice that leads to the cessation of asavas. This Brahmin is called the footprint of the realized one, and also used by the realized one, and also marked by the realized one. At this point, a noble disciple has not yet come to a conclusion, but they are coming to a conclusion. The Blessed One is fully awakened, the teaching is well explained, and the Sangha is well practiced. So here you have the Four Noble Truths, which includes, of course, the understanding everything in terms of the three characteristics of non-self and all of that. And so you understand how this causal structure works. That's why you can see the origin of suffering fully and also understand what the cessation of suffering is by removing that causality structure behind it. 
and uh, you also understand the defilements, yeah, which is, uh, of course, uh, you understand, in other words, the problems uh, as well. Uh, this is kind of part and parcel of this insight, knowing the suffering and also knowing the things in the mind that block you and hinder the passage and all of these kind of things. Uh. So you are coming to the conclusion. Uh, so you are, at this point, you become a stream enterer. Uh, uh, you don't. You haven't yet seen the very end of everything. You haven't become an arahant yet. Uh, you now know what the Buddha saw, uh, but you haven't seen the idea of arahantship fully. You know where arahantship lies. You know how to get there, but you haven't seen it yet. Uh, so, knowing and seeing like this, the mind is freed from the defilement of sensuality, desire for rebirth, and ignorance. Uh, and when they are freed, they know that they are freed. Uh, they understand rebirth is ended, the spiritual journey has been completed. What had to be done has been done. There is no return to any state of existence. This Brahmin is called the footprint of the realized one, and also used by the realized one, and also marked by the realized one. And at this point, a noble disciple has come to the conclusion. The Blessed One is fully awakened. The teaching is well explained. The Sangha is practicing well. And it is at this point that the simile of the elephant footprint has been completed in detail. So, there you are. That is the final conclusion of the simile of the elephant's footprint. When you too become an arahant. So may each one of you become arahants in this life, uh, so you can see the Buddha with your own eyes. You can see the bull elephant out in the open. You are no longer just uh, fumbling around, seeing a mark here, a mark there, seeing a footprint here, a footprint there. Uh, even that is hard enough to see, because you have to get to a jhana to see the real footprint. Uh, uh, and uh, so this is how it all goes. Uh, and uh, then this Brahmin, Janusoni, what does he say? Well, this is what he says. Uh, when the Buddha had spoken, the Brahmin Janusoni said to the Buddha, Excellent, Master Gautama, excellent. As if he were writing the overturned, or revealing the hidden, or pointing out the path to the lost, or lighting a lamp in the dark, so people with good eyes can see what's there. Master Gautama has made the teaching clear in many ways. I go for refuge to Master Gautama, to the teaching, and the mendicant, the monastic Sangha. From this day forth, may Master Gautama remember me as a lay follower has gone for refuge for life. <laughs> so, there you are. That is the Chula Hatti Padopama Sutta. So, um, we still have a 40 minutes left. So, uh, does anyone want to say anything more? Have any more questions or comments? Or want to add something to what has been said? Have, say what should have been said but hasn't been said that I have omitted so far? So uh, if you wish, you can uh, uh, do that now, uh, if there is anything here that needs to be added. Uh, do you think anything needs to be added? Uh, Anything that needs to be subtracted? Have I said too much somewhere? Sometimes you don't know. 
And I think that needs to be nuanced. Uh, So the um, version that Bandha um, uh, uh, reckons is the most likely one. Yeah. So in body contemplation, there is six parts, right? Uh, usually, uh, the six parts is breath, four postures, uh, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension, thirty-one parts of the body, four elements, and cemetery contemplation. There are the six. Yeah. And the the most original one is just the thirty-one parts of the body. Yeah. Yeah according to him. When it comes to feeling contemplation, well, basically feeling contemplation are the same across all schools. So that one is basically the same. It doesn't actually change very much. Mind contemplation also seem to be basically the same with all schools. There's only, there's only one way of presenting that, which is what you find in the Pali version. And in the Dhamma Nupassana, it is, really, it is just the hindrances and the seven awakening factors that seem to be original, not the five khandas, not the six sense spaces, not the four noble truths. So that leaves you with a kind of simple sutta. And uh, then there is the uh, refrain that you find everywhere. So the refrain has the idea of uh, internal, external, both internal and external. It has the arising, originating factors, the vanishing factor, the originating and vanishing. And of those, the only the internal, external, and both internal and external seems to be the more original part. Uh, not the originating factors. Uh, so it's interesting because um, when you look at the Satipatthana Sutta in this way, it kind of moves it a little bit away from what is normally called Vipassana towards Samatha. Yeah? You take away a lot of the things that are more kind of Vipassana related or related to deep insight and these kind of things, uh, and it becomes more of a Samatha practice. Yeah? Watching the breath is normally called a Samatha practice, a calming practice. And so it becomes more like more of what we normally call the samatha meditation. But of course, in reality, there is no distinction between samatha and vipassana. It is all kind of very blurry. Uh, but um, so what really matters is that uh, what we are doing, it leading towards samadhi. That is really what matters. Uh, and whether you call that samatha or you call it vipassana is really irrelevant. It's actually it's going to be both. Because samatipasana will grow together and they will eventually lead to samadhi. And then after samadhi, that is when samatipasana leads to deep insight. So you have to kind of get the sequence right, yeah? And then when you, as you get the sequence right, then you know what is appropriate to do as a consequence. Are you happy, Shane? Yeah, okay. Are you blissed out? Are you? <laughs> I just, uh, okay, anything else, anyone here? Yes. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it fits in with uh, basically it fits in with the if you look at the Anapanasati Sutta, yeah, at the very end you have the exactly that's what you have, Anichanupasana and uh, all of these things. Uh, so here really it fits in kind of with the I think it comes as an automatic consequence of the bhujangas. Uh, yeah? when, you hit, when you do the bhujangas, you take it all the way to the fourth jhana. Then you know, one of the interesting things about the Buddhist path, which I always found so fascinating, uh, is that the Noble Eightfold Path ends with Samma Samadhi. Uh, 
It doesn't end with panya. It doesn't end with insight. It ends with samasamadhi. And that's kind of amazing. Why does it end with sama samadhi? Shouldn't there be something more? What about sama jnana and sama vimutti that you find? Sometimes when you have the tenfold path, you find that. But the path ends with sama samadhi. And the, I think the point is that once you meditation is very profound and it is founded on right view, because right view is the first factor, all of those together, they give the result, which is uh, uh, samanyana. You see things according to reality. Uh, if you have samadhi, you see things according to reality. Uh, yeah, this is kind of what happens. Uh, you look at the process you have been through, uh, and then you see that that process is empty of a self, that it is uh, impermanent, it is always changing. Uh, and in fact, this is exactly what you find. Some of the suttas, like um, uh, Majjhimanika 64, which is the Maha Malunkya Putta Sutta, uh, it is about the path to awakening, yeah? and then there you go through the jhana states. Yeah? And when you come out of the jhana, it says that you contemplate those parts of the jhana. You contemplate what there, what was there of, and it talks about the five khandhas. Yeah, what was there of feeling? What was there of perception? Uh, what was there of sankara? And it talks about a number of things. Uh, uh, and then you contemplate that in terms of impermanence. Uh, Suffering and non-self. It gives a large number of synonyms for that uh, uh, as well, in addition to just those three. Uh. So it is what happens when you come out of samadhi, you contemplate those things yeah, afterwards. Uh, and uh, it is almost like included in the path, almost understood. Uh, and that's why it ends, where I think the, it tends to end with the four jhanas, uh, samma samadhi. And I think here it ends with uh, the satta, satta sambhojangas. Uh. Yeah, it ends with the seven factors of awakening, and it doesn't really say much about the contemplation beyond that. But, and I think maybe this is why uh, that um, you know the five aggregates were later on added to this, yeah, because maybe there was a feeling, well, you know, once you come to the bojangas, well, then you have to contemplate something, contemplate the five aggregates, uh, and that may have been the reason for adding that to the Satipatthana Sutta to then enable the you know the final contemplation that leads to full awakening here. Yeah. And uh, it's more clear in the Anapanasati Sutta because in the Anapanasati Sutta it talks specifically about uh, Anichanupasana, the Anichanupasi, Viraganupasi, Nirodhanupasi. Uh, and that, that is a contemplation of those things. And what you're contemplating is the process you have been through, exactly as you find in Majjhima 64. Uh. Am I making any sense? Yeah, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> you don't look entirely convinced. So, I'm <laughs> so uh, yeah, but it's kind of, it's, it's uh, fast. I think a lot of it tends to be automatic because you already have, you come to this with the right view. So when you come to the jhanas, you know already how to look at them, yeah, because you have this idea of impermanence and non-self. So when you come out, you will see that in there almost by, by default. Yes, Lina. Yeah, I, um, 
Yeah, so they, what is the purpose of Satipatthana? Well, it gives a different angle on the process. Yeah, The Buddha, this is one of the things the Buddha always does, he gives different angles on the same process. So Anapanasati is one way of thinking about it, uh, and it gives you the most obvious approach, but to give you a, a broader idea of what is going on, giving different kind of qualities of mind and feeling that you have to be aware of, it gives you that broadening of things. So it talks about feeling, you know, in the Anapanasati Sutta, it is only, only talks about happy feelings. But in Satipatthana, it talks about the painful feelings. It reminds you that through the happy feelings, you also understand the pain. And you wouldn't know that if you didn't have the Satipatthana Sutta. And the same thing with the mental qualities, a reminder that you also understand those negative mental qualities by developing the good ones. So it gives you a much broader scope, broader understanding. The whole idea of looking at the hindrances and the seven-factor awakening in detail gives you a lot of... Uh, gives you a lot of information about how to think about these qualities of mind so that you can develop them properly. You wouldn't find that just by the Anapanasati Sutta. So it gives you an alternative angle on things and it gives you, broadens out the, uh, your ability to understand what is going on, what you have to do. Huh? And as for um, Satisampajanya, is it, uh, yes, you can just sit down on the cushion, but you, you can't sit on the cushion all the time. Huh? And Satisampajanya is what you do when you don't sit on the cushion. Huh? Yeah. So you, for example, in daily life, you walk around, you try, it's not just about being aware. Remember, this is the kind of point. It's about being aware for a particular purpose, not to give rise to defilements, right? That is Satisampajanya. So you use that in your daily life to keep your mind even, so that when you come to the cushion, you are better prepared to practice, the, practice your meditation. So that is the point. Yeah. Mm. It is it is possible without attending the four. It, the first is enough. That's actually said in the sutta specifically. But here, because it is sequential, it looks like it comes after the four. But that's just because of the sequence, the way it is laid out. Uh, yeah. But there are other places where it says you come to the first jhana, then you contemplate the first jhana, and you become even arahant based on the first jhana, according to some suttas. Uh, you don't need all four. Uh, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, one is enough. Uh, can you become Sri Mantra without one jhana? I don't know. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. It's very hard to say from the suttas. But I would say, generally speaking, probably not. Uh, because the, uh, the suttas say that samadhi is the cause, is the upanisa, the root cause for yata buddha yeah, Samadhi, then comes yata buddha It's always that sequence. Uh, what is samadhi? Well, samadhi in the suttas is almost always the four jhanas. Uh, that's kind of the main understanding of it. And the stream entry, of course, is one type, one high type of Yata Bhutanana That's what stream entry is. So because of that, it you know, it's very close to saying jhana is required for stream entry here. Anyway, it it's almost also makes sense because if you think about this idea of jhana and stream entry, uh, jhana is a lesser attainment. Yeah? Jhana is something that you have to give up a lot. But stream entry, you have to give up more. So it's easier to give up less rather than give up everything in one go, right? So you give up a little bit less going into jhana, and then that enables you to give up more, which is stream entry. Stream entry is a full insight into all the five khandhas. Jhana is not a full insight yet. It is insight into the body and many things, not the full insight. So it is like a natural progression to go with jhana first. It's, yeah, so it's like you know flying from 
Perth to Melbourne, you have to fly over one of some of the other cities. And if you don't, then you have to make a big detour. It's really problematic. I don't know, it's something like that. <laughs> it's making up some dodgy similes on the go. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. They would have been made fairly early on. Yeah, because uh, you remember that what we are doing here, we're comparing the, the different schools of Buddhism. <coughs> and uh, those different schools, they're separated very soon after the time of the Buddha. So you're talking about, probably talking about within the first couple of hundred years after the Buddha. So, and this was a time, remember this was a time when the suttas were, <coughs> excuse me, were um, uh, collected together. You had things like the four great standards for deciding which suttas to, you know, to collect, uh, which ones were authentic and all these kind of things. Uh, and at that time, they would, have been, they would have been still quite fluid. It wasn't very solid yet what the suttas were. Uh, and so that's quite likely, and that's what was a time when they would have added the narratives, for example. It's very interesting when you read the description of the first council, or the first chanting together, the first communal recitation. It's, you know, in there, Venerable Mahakasapa, he asks Ananda, okay, so this Brahmajala Sutta, where was it recited? Right, he asks where. Well, if he asks where, it means that that information was not in the Sutta. Yeah? Otherwise, you wouldn't have to ask where. Who was the protagonist? Who was, uh, who was kind of dealing with the Buddha? So he says, well, this was the person. So all that information was missing at the first council. It hadn't yet been added to the sutta. So we know that material was added to the sutta as they evolved. Initially, it was just the word of the Buddha. Then narrative material was added later on. Be because it is added later, because it hasn't been kept in memory, it is going to be more uncertain. The stuff that has been systematically memorized since the time it was spoken by the Buddha would have had a greater chance of being memorized correctly because it was passed down properly yeah, in a systematic way. Whereas this stuff was not passed down systematically. That's why he asked the question at the first council. And so we know that there was a process of editing and creating the suttas. And uh, so it's probably during that time that these things were done, yeah. And they were saying, "Oh, yeah, well, this belongs to." And maybe, and maybe the Buddha gave different versions of the Satipatthana Sutta. Maybe some places it had this, some places it had something else. And and then you know, there's, there's all kind of possibilities here for what is going on. Uh, but um, and and the, one thing that. Um, but the Siddhartha does, which is kind of interesting, because uh, uh, the Abhidhamma has also a version of Satipatthana, right? Uh, and usually you cannot say Abhidhamma, that's later, we don't have to consult that. But it turns out that the Abhidhamma version, or well, the Abhidhamma is a large body of work, seven books of the Abhidhamma, and then, but there are some parts of that Abhidhamma which are very early. It's called the Suttanta Bhajaniya, the analysis according to the suttas. So that is basically the Abhidhamma is laying down, this is what you find in the suttas. If you look at that, it is very, very similar to what you find in the sutta, but very simple, yeah, super duper simple. And that is where you find that the body, uh, the 31 parts of the body, is the only kayanapasana, according to that. Uh, this is in the Vibhanga of the Abhidhamma Pitaka, Suttanta Bhajaniya. And in the Dhammanupasana, contemplation of Dhammas, you only have the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening here. Whereas the, the feeling and citta mind section are basically the same. Uh, 
So he uses the Abhidhamma Bhajaniya because even though most of the Abhidhamma is much later than the suttas, if a sutta has been changed down the track, it could be that some parts of the Abhidhamma actually are earlier than the suttas. Yeah? And here we have a very simplified version. Where does that come from? Well, it could very well be an early expression of what the Satipatthana Sutta was. So, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Ther- Theravada has two different, uh, very different versions of Satipatthana, which is kind of interesting, yeah. Yes, sure. Again, I'd like to ask you about the Yeah, <laughs> I know the feeling. We all know. We all know that feeling. Yeah, we all been there. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's. I mean, the skillful in us. You, you, what are the things that make you happy in life? Yeah, and sometimes it can just be hearing a dhamma talk from some kind of really nice teacher that you enjoy. You know, some someone who makes you feel really calm and peaceful. Huh? And sometimes you get these kind of marvelous talks and you just feel a sense of happiness and joy when you hear them. Uh, that's one possibility. Uh, uh, or it can be someone, one way is to think about sometime in your life when you did have gladdening the mind, the mind was really happy. Yeah? And you think back at that time and you think, why was I happy then? You think about that and you kind of bring it into the present. Uh, something you did that really th- you kind of really made you joy and jump up and down and kind of skip in the streets and that kind of stuff, you know? So there are things in our life that we have done that kind of feel like that. Uh, um, so this is how you. This is basically how you do it. Or sometimes just think about how you lived your life. Yeah, you've been a very super duper person for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> and sometimes we underappreciate ourselves. We don't. We don't think about the fact that actually I've been keeping the eight five precepts for you know a long time. How wonderful isn't that? That's marvelous. Yeah, what a wonderful thing. And you know, what we are giving to society and giving to ourselves and giving to people around us is a beautiful gift of security, of feeling safe. They can trust you. They don't have to worry when they are around Sue. She don't, you know, she's not going to kill you or anything like that. <laughs> or she's not going to take you for advantage or cheat you or anything like that. And actually that kind of psychological safety that we feel around people who live well is a very beautiful gift to other people. So just uh, think about, you know, and this is the kind of thing you think about, uh, and then that will kind of uh, elevate you and kind of feel, and sometimes it will work, sometimes it won't work. It will depend on all other kind of factors, yeah, what, what the state of your mind is on that day, whether you're already leaning in the right direction, all of these kind of things. Uh, and then the, uh, you know, the joy can come. The joy can come at really strange times. Uh, you have no idea why. Uh, yeah? You just got out of bed on the right side in the, one morning and then suddenly everything is kind of uh, going really well. Uh, 
But uh, it is tricky. If you are, the, the more kind of experience you have with the Dhamma, the more you can just uh, contemplate the Dhamma in a sense, and you can just reflect, you know, you know what you have seen, you know what you, and you can get inspiration very easily because you understand the profundity of what you're dealing with there. But uh, for other people, it's a bit more, a bit more unreliable. Huh? And, uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> See what happens. Uh, check it out. Uh, yeah. All right. So, um, uh, I, you know, sometimes it gets very complicated, all these teachings. And uh, I always like to, at the very end of all of these teachings, to kind of draw it all together and just to remind you. And I always say the same thing at the end of every retreat. Uh, but uh, just to kind of keep it really simple, because it may seem like incomprehensible. Maybe it depends on how new you are to these teachings, how long you've been around, and all of these kind of things. Uh, and it may all seem very complicated. But the reason why I draw out the details, because I know that in the... Uh, in a community like this, there are many people who have been doing this for a long time and who enjoy a bit more of detail and gain, they gain a bit more confidence and understanding that way. And so I still enjoy going into the details. Uh, but you don't really have to remember any of this, yeah? as long as you feel confident about it. Uh, and uh, this is one of the most important things in life, is to remember the crucial points, uh, what really is critical to continue to make progress on this path. Yeah? This is really what it is all about. Uh, and uh, to make it as simple as you possibly can. Uh, and really, and I always tell people this, there's only one thing you need to remember from this whole retreat. Uh, and if you can remember that one thing, uh, then you are in business. So remember kindness. Uh, yeah? Because kindness really includes everything. Uh, kindness includes how you speak. Uh, how you act also includes how you think. Yeah, It includes not doing the bad things, but doing the good things. It includes the metta, the compassion, the understanding, all of these things. So remember kindness. Yeah, Have it over your bed. Have a big big kind of sign saying kindness. Yeah, So you, you remember that every, when you wake up in the morning, that's the first thing you remember. Yeah. And so this is a, kind of the really the critical thing. And if you can do that consistently, yeah, Time in, time out, moment after moment, all the time. Keep it at the back of your mind. Be mindful of kindness. Remember, mindfulness means two things. It means awareness, and it means a memory of the teachings. Yeah, What is that memory of the teaching? Well, that is the word kindness. That is all you really need in daily life. If you can bring in some of the other things, you can if you wish. But that should be like the center point of what you're doing here. And if you can keep that in mind, moment after moment, day in, day out, carrying on, then guaranteed you're going to make progress on this path, because this is what this is about. And of course, the problem is in life that sometimes we forget about kindness, because it's hard to remember things Yeah, when things get very busy and all kind of stuff happens. And then you have to remind yourself. And one of the ways of reminding yourself is to make sure that you do a little bit of meditation so that your mind can rest. You don't have to do meditation if you don't like it, but it is, can be useful to 
aid you even in daily life to live well and then you can come on retreats and really test out your abilities uh, so that is an important one but the most important thing here is to allow the teachings to come back yeah all the time regularly so you are reminded of kindness uh, because any good teaching uh, any teaching that comes from the suttas will remind you of these basic things uh, yeah so you come back to the dhamma and think oh yeah i must be kind oh forgotten about that yeah i got so busy during daily life uh, and this is that regular brainwashing that we all require until you become stream entry before stream entry, you are still so subject to the kind of vagaries of the world, uh, always being pushed around by all these causes and conditions around us. Uh, and in that meantime, you need the brainwashing. Uh, you need the right view. Get it re-established uh, to remind you what is important. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, remember kindness if you can. Uh, but uh, to, to be able to remember kindness properly, come back to the Dhamma. Come back to these teachings, read the suttas, inspire yourself, allow others to inspire you, whoever it is that inspires you in this world, and then lift yourself up, apply yourself again to this basic thing. And as you do that, gradually, gradually, you purify yourself. Mindfulness becomes more powerful. And one day, when you sit down on the cushion, you enter some very powerful, amazing state that you have never accessed before. And then you kind of bow down to the Buddha and you have tears in your eyes. You cry because cry, you cry of joy because it's such a powerful experience. You didn't know anything like this could exist in human existence. It is so extraordinary. You have an understanding what it means to be a Buddha, yeah? the footstep of the Buddha. You have, maybe you have seen the first scratching of the Buddha in your own life. Now you have some idea. You can imagine the faith and confidence in these teachings that arises out from that. It's very, very powerful. And that joy is like a joy when you cry because of the, uh, the, these kind of experiences. It's a very powerful sense of confidence and faith that arises with that. So keep on practicing, and then these things will come around eventually. And when they come around, they are life-changing, life-altering. It's like a positive trauma. Yeah, it's not. It's, a, it's a something I learned from Ajahn Brahm. It's such a beautiful expression. Yeah, it is a trauma because you can never forget it. Most people are not most, but many people are affected by negative traumas. They had some kind of terrible experience that they can, can't get it out of the mind. This is an experience that is so positive you can never forget it. It is glued into your mind once and for all. It's that thing over your bed, but it's inside your head. Yeah, kindness. Uh, it's always with you. And that is a wonderful thing when that happens. Uh, and you take this with you until the day you die. Uh. And maybe you go even further. Yeah, This is kind of what this is all about. So keep on enjoying uh, all your practices and everything. Uh, and uh, now I have talked plenty enough, so I'm going to no, no, become... Okay. No, no. <laughs> oh, I saw the vice president coming up. I got a bit scared. I thought maybe I said, said something wrong, but uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I think this is probably plenty enough. But uh, it's been wonderful to see you all again uh, and nice to see people coming back and enjoying these retreats. Uh, so uh, now we just have to do all the hard work <laughs> in between. Uh, and then uh, if uh, things go well, I'm sure we may, may very quite likely see each other again also in the future. Uh, so um, um, we should, uh, I would, maybe before we take the five precepts and everything. I would just like to thank everyone for your 
marvelous support, especially uh, the uh, Ajahn Nisarana, I'll start with Ajahn Nisarana because he's always around supporting. It's wonderful to, wonderful to have him here. And also Venerable Sadaro, who I met for the first time. Very nice to meet Venerable Sadaro. It's always good to meet good monks. And also the committee, when, uh, not Venerable Shinta, <laughs> but uh, honor, Honorable, Honorable Shinta. We have to make a slight difference. Honorable Shinta, and uh, the, uh, who, has main, who has the main organizer yeah, behind all of this. So thank you. And Yasmin at the back, I don't even know who has been part of this. So all those have been part of this. Yeah, everyone, others. Yeah. And thank you all for coming. Yeah, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see you again. It's the retreat is better if there are people here. So it's marvelous for you all to come. <laughs> it's great to see you all. And uh, so that's it. So um, take care and look after yourself. And now if you wish to take the five precepts, we can do that now. Yeah. Yeah.